Grace and peace to you from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thou shalt not kill. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Our first two weeks of our, our family bond, our, our, our bond of life, included the fourth commandment, the sixth commandments, which sustain and protect the bonds of life of our closest neighbor, parents, child, and spouse. Our flesh and blood attachments. And there's nothing abstract about these attachments. They constitute the very air that we breathe. They are the foundation of every society, not just Western society. By contrast, the fifth commandment, thou shalt not murder, is the tie that binds every human life together. And that becomes significantly more abstract because it is so universal. It involves us in everywhere we go and with everyone we know and including those people that we don't know. We take that bond with us everywhere, even if we find ourselves nowhere in particular. The right to life lacks a specificity. Not in our marriage or our family, it's everywhere. And that's why we tend to take it for granted. But in the fifth commandment, it reminds us that we dare not. We dare not fail to see every human face as an actual human face. Every human being that we encounter is a neighbor of ours, a neighbor whom Jesus himself loves. When God made a covenant with Noah and his sons after the great flood, he gave them all the animals of the earth to eat as food. The blood of an animal could be shed so that a human being could survive, but not so with the blood of other human beings. We shall not live off of them. God tells Noah that he will demand an account of the life of our fellows. Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. If you read the memoirs of soldiers and the accounts of men in battle, you'll sometimes get a great sense of their, their humanity. When a soldier recounts the first time that he ever took the life of an enemy soldier, quite often in this, this case, the killing was justified, but there's this terrible sense of awe of what he has done. He's killed someone who was trying to kill him. But in that act... They've been joined together in this, this bond of life. And that may be sort of the worst thing that happens about war is that this, this trauma happens again and again and again. And as the trauma continues to reoccur, more are killed. And it eventually blinds us to the face of our enemy and we forget that they are actually real people. Now to make this point, I'd like to use the word right that life is a right, the problem is right tends to be sort of a, a worldly word. It's not really a biblical word. And sometimes in the, in, if we use worldly words, it sort of loses some meaning because the world uses right for pretty much everything under the sun. Anything that anybody wants, they can go, well, that's, that's a right. I fully expect public transportation to become a human right any day now. Biblically, we're told that we are created in the image of God. And in that image, we share 
And we receive life from God, and we receive that life to us as a loan, and we are to respect it, we are to guard it, we are to protect it, not just our own lives, but the lives of those around us. That's why we call it a, a bond. The Bible goes further to respect and protect to the to the respect and the protection that we owe to humans, humans who share God's image is more than just respect added to that, the incarnation in which God himself takes human life into himself and Jesus becomes one of us and shares in that common bond of life. God stands by human beings, respects and transforms them in his love and protects them in his concern. So in the face of other people, now we see not just the face of human beings who have been formed in the image of God, but we also see the face of God in our friends and neighbors. The commandment forbids murder. It forbids us to murder those of whom Christ created and loves. But the killing is not exclusively forbidden. We may be executed by the state. The state is God's agent of wrath for the evildoer to punish those that do evil. We may be killed in a just war. And in that justification, in that just war, we must be participants of that war. We should not be killed as a civilian. Although we know that civilians do die in war, it is our job as a moral nation to, to keep those, those losses to the, the barest minimum that we can. We should not be killed as a terrorist. We should not be, be killed as a captive either. The bond of life forbids the killing, which fails to see the image of God in the enemy. The life bond forbids the killing in which hatred pays any part. As Jesus makes it clear on the Sermon on the Mount, God forbids not just the killing of our rival, but Jesus forbids the hating of our rival as well. God forbids hatred in all of its manifestations, whether in anger directed towards past quarrels and arguments or the future for suspicions of future deception. Hatred or the resentment of another is directed towards the present is poisonous unto life. Anger, suspicion, resentment, racism, sexism, all of these destroy the bond of life in which we share amongst ourselves. Anything that weakens that bond can be seen as a sin against our fellow human. Because the neighbor is made in God's image and because in that neighbor we also see the face of Christ who became like us. The commandment does more than just forbid hatred and murder. It also calls us to an activeness of love. It calls for us to be concerned about our neighbor. Luther captures this positive thrust in the small catechism when he explains, we should fear and love our neighbor that do we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body, but that we help and support him in every physical need. Thus, we break this commandment not only when we hate our neighbor in, in all of its many and various forms, but we also break this commandment when we neglect our neighbor when we fail to help him, when we fail to befriend him. In fact, we might say that, we, that neglect is worse than hatred. I mean, at least if I hate my enemy, I have to pay attention to him even some. 
I have to watch out for him. I have to keep my mind upon him. My attention rests upon him. I at least have to take him into account to recognize him and his concerns, even if it's just to oppose him. But to the whom the person that I neglect, whose needs I simply fail to see, as if one that maybe doesn't even exist, this is how little of an account that he is in my world. But this is what neglect means. That we can choose not to enter into the world of this neighbor in need. That we can choose not to meet his need. That we can choose not to help. That we can choose not to deprend him. That we can choose to just simply ignore their existence altogether. And this too is the breaking of that commandment. That thou shalt not kill. And we find ourselves hurrying along the side of the road with the priest and the Levite. Refusing to acknowledge the man that's beaten and and brutalized in in the road and lying near to death in the Good Samaritan parable. We, We become like that Pharisee or like that priest who just skirts along his own way saying, it's none of my business. Sometimes it's true. Neglect may be the best that we can manage. We may deal with our hatred of our enemies by just simply pushing them out of our minds and out of our consciences, and thus we've exchanged one vice for another. But even if this may work to some extent, it is not the way that we were raised. It's not the way your mother taught you to be, is it? It's not the way Jesus would have us live our lives. Luther says in his Decalogue hymn, Do good to thy foe. Jesus tells us, love your enemy, not to forget your enemy, not to ignore your enemy. He says to love your enemy, but to seek to make that enemy a friend. Is this not the gospel message? That God has came to live as one of us, as Paul puts in Romans chapter 5, that he has come to live with his enemies, that while we were yet the enemies of God, Jesus Christ became man in order to save those who were under the law, who were perishing as we were under the wrath of God. For this Jesus of whom came and we suspected him, as one who claims control over our lives, that we would do glad to ignore, that we would do glad to recognize him as an enemy and crucify him. And yet by God's grace that we should learn to love this enemy of whom we would have murdered. If this enemy is for us, then who could possibly be against us? If this is our enemy and he does not strike back, if he continues to side with us, what have we not learned in that that Christ-like manner is that enemies can be turned. We can make them friends. We can love them as we love our friends and neighbors. What if in, in every enemy we actually saw the face of Jesus Christ himself? A man or a woman whom Jesus would have died for, would have sacrificed for, did die for, did sacrifice for. We come to love those faces of whom we have not known. What enemy then remains for us? We have a long way until we go to live in such a world, and chances are we will never see it. Until that day when our vision becomes clear, 
and so unclouded by sin that we no longer see or envision an enemy around every corner, but we know that by God's grace, it can be done, it will be done, within, at least within our lives. For we have begun to learn to love this Jesus, this Jesus who was our enemy, who stood by us to help us, to befriend us in every bodily need, including the giving of his own body for our need. And as Paul writes, we can be confident that the God who has begun this good work within us bring it to completion in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The day is surely coming. Come, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.